I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. So the other day I went to the grocery store and uh, I walked down the aisle to get the thing that we all need the most for some weird reason that's been sold out. Well, besides like Lysol and Clorox wipes. I went down the toilet paper aisle and I was looking at what I had to choose from and they had two brands that the store had in stock. One was Scott's, which we all know was hot garbage and should only be used in emergencies, right? But the other one was a different brand and it said that it was soft. Right. So I, it was funny because I had both of these things in my hand. I was looking at Scott's and I was like, uh, and I was looking at the other brand, which said it's soft. And I was like, I don't know. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just leave these and I'll go to another store that will have a brand that I prefer. And I, <laughs> and I thought about that. And I actually considered putting both down and not buying anything, even though we needed some, until I had checked another store. But during all of this stuff with the coronavirus, most stores have less for us to choose from. The, the illusion of possibility of choice almost left me making a bad decision and not getting what I needed when I could. And I did actually wind up going to the other store to get some other things that I needed that this store didn't have. And their choices of toilet paper were equally bad. So I made the right decision. But it's funny how that illusion of choice kind of kept me from actually making one. But it, and that got me thinking, right? So here in the States... You can choose from a myriad of possibilities for just about anything, right? So at my same uh, shopping trip, I went down the potato chip aisle and I saw regular Lay's. But then they also have Lay's dill and then they have Lay's barbecue and they have Lay's sour cream and onion. They have Lay's salt and vinegar, Lay's chili limon, Lay's fiery habanero, Lay's Chesapeake Bay crab spice. And this is just Lay's. We haven't even gotten into hers or uts and all or ruffles. We haven't even gotten into what you can choose from those. And we even have restaurants that revolve around the idea of walking up to massive tables, like jam-packed with food, and then choosing what you want, going back, sitting down, eating it, and going back for more and more and more. You have this smorgasbord of options. And sometimes you wind up just going for the same thing. And, and that can lead you to a little bit of mental fatigue. Look at all this stuff. How do I choose between, ah, uh, whatever. And this plays itself out too in, in, the, in the religious world, right? Here we have in the United States, there are literally thousands of different Protestant sects. There are different expressions of Catholicism, right? You have the Maronite Catholics, you have the Eastern Catholics. They're all in communion together. Then you have the Orthodox churches, you have the Antiochians, and you have, you know, the, 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 the Greeks and the Ukrainians. You have... Then you have like all the different Lutheran denominations, and then you have the Anglicans, you have the Anglican Church of North America, you have the Anglican Province of America, you have the Episcopal Church. The list goes on and on and on. And then you to throw something else into the mix, you have the spiritual but not religious people who kind of just make up their own belief system by taking buffet style from all these other religious traditions, regardless if the worldview of those religions fits with what they're trying to do. And we see something similar right in the ancient world believe in a specific God? Cool. Put them on the shelf or her on the shelf with all the other gods. There's room enough for them all. 
And in today's reading, St. Paul comes across this. And while preaching the gospel, he was taken to the hill of the Areopagus, and he used this as a basis for proclaiming the primacy of the Christian God. So in the Acts reading, <clears throat> we heard this story. And so we're going to take a look at St. Paul's speech on the Areopagus. So earlier in the chapter, what motivated his speech is his arrival to Athens. And it says, as he was traveling through Athens, he saw all of the idolatry on display and he was provoked in his spirit. Being in that atmosphere where you have altars and idols everywhere to a plethora of different gods, different deities from across the Greco-Roman Empire, right? All of these places there in Athens, it provokes him. A holy provocation, but it provokes him to be sure. And so he immediately sets to work, right? He begins like he always does when St. Paul goes to a new place. He always starts in the synagogue preaching and reasoning with the Jews there. But then he also goes to the marketplace and he begins to interact with the Stoic philosophers and it says the Epicurean philosophers. It mentions those two specifically in the book of Acts. Now the Stoic philosophers, according to Bruce, they laid an emphasis on self-sufficiency and the rational faculties of the human being with a strong moral earnestness, which could you know, lead to spiritual pride. And it's very interesting, brothers and sisters, that Stoicism has reappeared a little bit in our culture and there are people who are actually trying to live the philosophy of stoicism right because it's all about self-sufficiency it's all about your own rational faculties and a strong moral uh, moral a strong morality a strong moral foundation on which to live your life but then there was also the epicureans that saint paul was dealing with and the epicureans believed that pleasure was the chief end of life. Pleasure. Everything revolves around pleasure. And we see that at play, don't we, brothers and sisters, in our culture nowadays. Everything is about geared, geared towards what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Even if doing what makes you happy will have horrible side effects on other people. Do what makes you happy. And both, even though they're very different, they both agreed that they disagreed with St. Paul. And they said, we don't understand your babbling. So they bring him to the, the Areopagus to give him a chance to present this, right, to, to the people who were, who were gathered there, the philosophers. So St. Paul, he comments on what he saw there, and he noted how religious they are, right? So we have to understand, in the pagan world, there's no division like there is now between the church and the state, or what we would call the sacred and the secular. There's no difference. This concept does not exist. The sacred and the secular are mixed together. Worship and civic life are one and the same. They were bound together. There's no dividing this up, right? So in pagan worship, the idea is you would make an idol, and then the God that you made of the picture of with the idol, the God would come into it, and then you would present its sacrifices, right, in order to gain the God's favor and blessing on whatever it is you were doing or what you wanted to do. 
So when you're walking through, when St. Paul's walking, you have all of these images of all of these gods at all of these temples. They believed that that God dwelt in that idol and you would bring them sacrifices and that God, if you did and you said the right thing and you made that God happy, then that God would be like, okay, I, they, they, yeah, I like what they brought me. I'm going to bless their crops. Yeah, okay, I like what they brought me. I'm going to help them find a spouse. That's how it worked in the ancient world. And they were really into this idea, like even so much so that when they were even cities, right, Athens especially, and Sparta, when they were seeking like guidance on what they should do, they would always send delegates to the oracle at Delphi. And the historian, the historian Tom Holland, he notes in one of his books that the lengths that they would go to in consulting the oracle, but then they would also do things like sending gifts and bribes to the priests of the oracle there to kind of get a favorable answer. And the way all this worked too, right, if something went wrong in the city, then it could be seen as, you know, offense against one of the gods, which we see in later Christian history. When Christianity becomes to be popular, well, they've angered the gods. We must, we must destroy them. So anyway, when St. Paul says, I perceive you are very religious, he's not complimenting them, <laughs> okay? He's not complimenting them here. He's not saying, that's good that you're very religious. He's just stating a fact, He's in effect saying, according to a commentator named Bruce, he's basically saying, hey, you guys, you're really superstitious. Our modern day equivalent of that would be, we all know that one person, right? They read their horoscope every day. They have maybe a dream catcher hung up somewhere in their home. Maybe they have like a yin and yang rug and like a little Buddha in the corner over there. And they greet everybody by saying namaste, even though they were brought up Catholic or Episcopalian. Right? We, all have that. <laughs> we all have that superstitious friend. That's what Paul's saying. You guys are really superstitious. And please, if you have a dream catcher, don't send me any angry letters, all right? Please. It was a joke. The historian Yaroslav Pelikan, he notes that there are a lot of different ways that St. Paul could have made his case for Christ here. Now think about this, right? So by the time Paul's there, you have the tragedy of, uh, you have the Greek tragedies, right? You have the story of Oedipus, right? The tragedy of Oedipus. You have the epic works of Homer, the Odyssey, the Iliad. You also have philosophy, Plato. We're, we're talking about the all-time greats, right? If you were making a team of philosophers, you would want on your side. You're talking about Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, the creme de la creme, right? The best of the best, your philosophical MVPs. You have all of this in that culture. And we know Paul's familiar with it because he quotes pagan authors later on. But Paul doesn't base it on the tragedy of Oedipus. Paul doesn't base his speech, his sermon to them on the philosophy of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or by drawing illustrations out of the Iliad or the Odyssey. He doesn't do that. He, pre, he bases it on what Yaroslav says, a faceless and nameless and mythless altar. A presumably faceless, nameless, and mythless altar. Paul doesn't say, hey, the gods that you worship, Zeus, right? He's actually the same God I'm about to tell you about. Isn't that cool? Same thing. That's not what he's doing here. He's not making one-to-one -one comparisons. Because the gods of Athens and the gods of the pagan world are not the same as the God of Israel. Now, St. Paul sees this altar to the unknown God, right? 
he links this to the God of Israel. This unknown God you have an altar for that they had just to probably be on the safe side, right? Because what's the best way of guaranteeing the best thing for Athens? Well, sacrifice to all of these other gods. But just in case we forgot one, uh, here's one that we might not know about. So we'll sacrifice to this unknown God just to have all of our bases covered. Paul says this unknown God, this faceless, nameless, and mythless God, this is actually the true God. This is the real God. He does not try to syncretize what he's about to preach to them with their own religious ideology, even while he uses their own philosophers to help make his point. And he begins some, by saying something that they would all have agreed with, right? He says, God created everything, and God doesn't live in human-made temples. And the philosophers would have had similar beliefs, right? It's like the, the pantheon of Zeus and all of these other gods. That's more popular level religion, the philosophers kind of prided themselves on having maybe a deeper understanding, but they still believed in, in a divine being, the source of all things. And Paul says, not only did this unknown God that you don't know create everything, but this God is not served by human hands, right? In other words, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need your sacrifices. God doesn't need the food that you would bring as a sacrifice, if everything was made by God, then there's no way that that God is dependent on us for anything. And then he says, all people and all nations, they derive from the first humans God created their being, right? Their existence. And God has allotted to every person, every human being, every nation, the period for which they will exist and the place which they will exist. God placed them in there to live. Now this is interesting because the Athenians had an odd origin story. This might be PG-13 if there's kids listening, right? So the, unlike the other city-states who like prided themselves on, well, here were our ancestors, they came from this. They were pure and wonderful and awesome. But the Athenians were different. They believed that their founding ancestor didn't come from somewhere else, but their ancestors sprang from the ground, right? So in the story, the god Hephaestus really is into Athena, and she's not into him at all, right? Because there's kids listening, I won't get into it, right? But what happens is St. Athena, there's a cloth, and she throws it on the ground that has, that has some stuff from Hephaestus in it, and what was in the cloth goes into the ground, and out comes the ancestor for the Athenians, but St. Paul takes that story and he cuts it to pieces by saying, the unknown God gave you this land. And you, you owe your very existence, not from this cloth that sprang out this ancestor, which is now you know, you're the one who founded the city and now every one of you descend from this person, which means you're super awesome and better than everybody else. He cuts that all down by saying, no, the unknown God gave you this land. You have your life, you have your being from this God. And then he follows this up, right, by quoting two poets, Epimenides and then a hymn to Zeus written by a guy named Aratus. And Epimenides wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. And from the hymn to Zeus written by Aratus, we are his offspring, right? So he takes this hymn to Zeus, right, and this poem written by a philosopher. And he says, these are not speaking of Zeus or your gods. These are actually speaking of the true God, the unknown God that you don't know. You derive everything from him. Paul then makes the claim that the God in whom they and all creation owe their existence to is calling them to do something, to repent. Why? 
Well, because the day is coming when a man will come to judge the world. And Paul says, we know this is true because this man was raised from the dead. And we know who this is, right? This is Jesus. And not only that, but everything they believed about their origin, about their gods, about their philosophy, God has overlooked that because that was their time of ignorance. But now since St. Paul is proclaiming the gospel to them, they no longer have any excuse when they are judged. The time of ignorance is over. Excuses are gone. Repent because judgment is coming. interesting how this concept of judgment especially recently has been kind of pushed aside and down in christian circles there's this intra-christian conversation about the rise of of universalism and this this arises because we don't like this idea of judgment saint paul says you guys no longer have any excuse now bruce notes the knowledge of god set forth here is no merely intellectual discipline. It involves moral and religious responsibilities. And for the lack of this knowledge, in the measure in which it was available to them, men are called upon to repent. Since God is not made of wood or stone, and no images of God can be fashioned, then the way they worship is being called into question. And this message is calling them to give up the idolatrous worship that forms the backbone of their entire culture. Remember what I talked about earlier about the sacred and secular mixed together? This is huge. This isn't just, okay, I'm sorry for my sins. Yes, Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God, right? And then go right back into the temple where they were worshiping Apollo or Dionysius or, or Zeus or Athena and continue to take part in these festivals, which are part of their social life too. This forms a complete break from everything that they knew. This is repentance. Repentance is the reorienting of ourselves. It's the reordering of the human person in the pattern of Jesus Christ. That means giving up stuff that held us as slaves. Like when we had our call to confession earlier, we talked about, you know, we still live as if we are in change. We still live as if we are serving the gods from which the unknown God has freed us from. In our own day and age, like I mentioned at the beginning of my, in the middle of the sermon, you know, we're inundated by competing expressions of religion, but we're also dealing with something akin to what the Athenians believed about themselves. Remember, I talked about their origins and it, their sense of superiority. And we as Americans, we know we have rose-tinted glasses on, I think, when we look back at the history of our founding. And we've created a powerful, potent mythology about our own greatness and our origins. Like the Athenians, we revel in our own greatness. And don't get me wrong, I love being an American. I lived overseas for seven years. And as much as I loved where I lived, it was a, an awesome place. And when I was there, I was like, this is better than America. I love it. And in some ways, it had some advantages. But being American, in my opinion, was better. So I love being an American. But we, like the Athenians, I think we've become overly nationalistic. And that strain of hyper-nationalism 
when combined with pieces of the American expression of Christianity, it can combine to create a national religion more potent at times than our own actual faith. And on the flip side of this equation is many of us look at the origin of our country primarily through the lens of power and oppression. And if we do, we become unable to see the good in spite of some of the bad, right? So we focus instead on interpreting everything through the, through the lens of oppression. And this also is its own religion that can be more powerful than our own religion, our own faith, right? So we wind up worshiping in America of an idealized past, or we wind up worshiping the idea of a future America where anything that even looks oppressive is swiftly dealt with by the government, leading to an even deeper and more dangerous oppression. And in the middle of all this, brothers and sisters, the gospel call goes out to us wherever on the spectrum we are of what I've just described to you. Right? The gods that we have made for ourselves are false, and they are literally demonic in nature. And like St. Paul reminded the Athenians, which is equally applicable to us, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. We don't like that fact. We don't like the fact that we will, each and every single one of us, me, you, Steve, Ray, Sandy, Cindy, Jeanette, anybody who's watching, right? Each and every single one of us, we will stand before the dread judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account for what we have done. Is that scary? Well, yeah. That, but here's the thing. That's okay. It's okay to be a little scary, right? Because we don't believe that a God who is love is also the God who will judge. Because all that judgy stuff, that's what God used to do in the Old Testament, right? God was really judgy and angry and mean and nasty in the Old Testament. But once Jesus came along, we saw that God is great and wonderful and loving and super caring. And we can all join hands and sing uh, rainbow and sunshines and sparkle pony songs forever and ever and ever. Isn't this great? God doesn't do messy things like judge anyone for anything anymore. And we wind up importing secular values into our faith. And they become the main lens by which we interact with and interpret scripture instead of what God has revealed. And we know from this text, brothers and sisters, that any God we put in place of the true God is false. And we know, brothers and sisters, that the Christian God is the true and the only God from whom all things flow from whom all things flow. This God who gives us our very existence, this God in whom we live and move and have our being, calls us to repent and indeed calls all people to repent. All people, right? Because times of ignorance, they're gone. When we hear the gospel call, our times of ignorance are over. And we are still, many of us, we keep dipping back into times of ignorance. We keep stepping back into the stuff God has called us out from. Our old patterns, our old way of life. As we learn to reorient ourselves to Christ. Instead of the gods that we used to serve. That means all people are called to repent all people are called to embrace Christ. Now, you might be listening, thinking, well, that's just Western colonialism. You're just importing your own narrative here. No, the Christian God, the God that was formerly unknown to the Athenians, Paul is now 
telling them this is who that God is, is calling you to repent, right? To repent to means to, to turn, right? To change, to change your mind, but not just a mental change of mind, but a change of your being, a change of who you are, a change in what you serve, a change, change in what you worship. So may the words of St. Paul to the Athenians, may that continue to ring true in our hearts, brothers and sisters, as well. And may we turn from all of the false idols and turn to the unknown God who has been revealed to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom is all glory together with the Father, who is from everlasting, and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help or food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.